Welcome to Future Forecast, a podcast about technology, leadership, and sustainability with leaders and entrepreneurs from around the world. I'm your host, Isabel Ringness, and today we are talking to Martin Hansen, arguably the best man alive to talk about this. He's a famous leadership expert, award-winning researcher, professor, and author. He's been ranked one of the world's most influential management thinkers by Thinkers 50. He is the co-author of the New York Times bestseller, Great by Choice, and the Wall Street Journal business bestseller, Great at Work. He has a PhD from Stanford Business School, has worked as a professor at Harvard Business School and in Sead, and is now a management professor at the University of California, Berkeley. Morten, thank you so much for joining our podcast. Well, thanks, Isabel, for having me. So I know you're a native Norwegian, but you're currently living in San Francisco with your wife and two daughters. And to warm you up, we like to start with two questions. And as an expert on performance and quite a high performer yourself, also being a Norwegian, what does your morning routine look like? You know, it's changed a lot. I used to be working into the late hours. I get up extremely early, uh, well, early, at least by my standards, um, around um, 5.30 a.m., get in the car. Um, I have to drive to either Berkeley or to Apple, where I have a part-time job. That's about an hour drive to beat traffic. And then I go to the uh, fitness center that I have there. So I beat the traffic, then in the fitness center for an hour, and then I go to work. It's, a, it's, it's just a wonderful way to start the day. It sounds like a morning routine of a high-performing person. Uh, so I want to dive into your latest book, uh, Great at Work, How Top Performers Do Less, Work Better, and Achieve More. You start the book by talking about your very first day at work in your dream job as a management consultant at Boston Consulting Group in London. And you had no work experience, but then you planned on compensating by putting in more hours and you ended up working as much as about 90 hours a week. But then one day you were baffled when you realized that your coworker, who in the book you call Natalie, uh, who never worked overtime, was performing better than you. How did that experience change you? That was hurtful. Right. I mean, I'm putting in 90 hours um, working on a merger and acquisition project for a client. So very intense work. And I thought this is the way you achieve. Right. I'm going to do have a great career at BCG and I'm going to show people. And so, you know, you're working 90, 100 hours a week. Um, and then I uh, one day sort of looked at her work. Her slides were crisper and more succinct than mine. Her analysis was better, more in depth. And I thought I did well, and I did, but she did even better. And I started looking for her and I couldn't find her at night because I was, you know, out there at 8 p.m., 9 p.m., 10 p.m., midnight and so on, and she wasn't. And I figured out she worked from nine to six and put in her hours, she worked hard. It's not like she was a slacker, not at all. Probably putting in 50 hours a week, I would imagine. And I tried to say, you know, uh, how is that possible? How is it possible that somebody who's putting in 50 hours can do better work than somebody who's putting in 90 hours. And, you know, I never really figured out what she did. But uh, I embarked on this five-year study of 5,000 people. And I found something even better than figuring out what Natalie did. Because I figured out what are the top performers in, among those 5,000 do. And they sort of did what she did. They didn't put in the 90 hours. They put in 50. They worked hard. But they did. this was more not how much they work, but how they work. Exactly. Um, because after the uh, BCG job, 
you quit and then you went to Stanford and earned your PhD and then you went to Harvard and then you became a professor. And then in 2002, you spent eight years together with Jim Collins on your book, Great by Choice, which actually happened to be part of my curriculum when I took my master's degree at the New School in New York. And this book is about how and why some companies are able to perform better than others. But then, as you mentioned, you decided to pose the question, how do individuals, not mm -hmm. just companies, perform better? I mean, what makes some people perform well and others don't? And uh, one of the common explanations is grit, persevering against obstacles over the long haul, talent, or simply working hard like you did at BCG, um, putting in countless hours. But then you embarked on this incredible research project, which I've written down. Everything that you did in that project was just incredible, um, but I, I don't need to go into that. But um, basically, uh, you found out a lot of different things, and we're going to dive into a few of them. But then overall, what was the kind of conclusion of all this incredible, uh, very extensive research work that you did? So the best performers, they work differently. And uh, I was trying to figure out, is there a common theme? And, you know, we've been using this uh, work smart, not hard kind of lingo for decades now. But if you really look at that kind of slogan, it's an empty slogan. What, what does that mean to work smart? And, and these people, they worked smart, but in a certain way. They were incredibly focused on working on a few things that matters the most and they implied intense targeted effort at those things. That's what working smart really means. And in the book, there are seven factors that, that makes that more concrete and practical. But that was the overarching kind of philosophy among these people. Um, and I would say they dared to do the contrarian thing. I mean, everybody does this, we're going to do something different. Interesting. So on these seven work smart practices that seem to be the common denominators amongst the really, really high performers, um, you, you especially say that, and, and you spoke about that today at the Nordic Business Forum, that top performers, they do less and more. They do less volume of activities, but more concentrated efforts. Do less and obsess, as you say very, very cleverly. And on stage today, you exemplified this with a sushi chef, a guy who spends 50 minutes a day perfecting one of his 12 sushi pieces by massaging an octopus, an octopus to make the meat tender. But then you also talked about how in today's world, it seems like everyone's engaged in a growing amount of projects and our CVs seem like they're more saturated with projects than they are years and spent in an organization. And these people, if you look at them from out, from the outside, at least, they seem really successful because, you know, they've, they've done a lot. But are they? And why do people who select a tiny set of priorities and make incredible efforts within these areas, why do they perform better? Yeah, I mean, you know, this is Jiro uh, in the movie Jiro Dreams of Sushi. Um, you know, uh, he he decided he, he serves 20 pieces of sushi. That's all he does in his little restaurant uh, with 12 seats or something like that. Uh, he doesn't serve um, appetizers, tempura, uh, desserts, drinks. I mean, it's just 20 pieces. And then if you do that, if, you have, if you're that ch picky in what you do, you can go all in and make those the 20 pieces the best in the world. But you can't just say, well, you know, I'm going to do 20 pieces and I'm going to apply average effort. Right? You've got to have the obsession. It sounds like a harsh word, obsession. And in some sense, it really is. And... You know, in the workplace, why should we expect otherwise? If you look at other uh, places in the society where people are incredible performances, I mean, take athletes, the performing arts. You know, Olympic champion is obsessing over the one thing that they're chosen to do. And that is also true in the workplace, it should be. 
uh, but most so they do less than obsess, right? They're very they're incredibly good at at prioritization, brutal prioritization, in fact. And then they go all in obsess, just like that that uh, sushi chef, and and that's the formula for success. Um, lots of people will go the other way. And we think about management; it's about starting things. That's what managers should be doing. Uh, new initiatives, new projects, new collaboration projects, new product, products and services. That's what is the essence of management. I mean, I teach that stuff at the business school, at the Harvard Business School. That's what you do. But, but then you spread yourself too thin. Your team is spread too thin relative to the resources you have. Uh, it becomes too complicated, too complex. Large companies, there's a drowning in complexity of their own making. And so you need to cull. You need to, to cut down. And it's so much harder to cut out than add things. And most managers in our study are bad at it. And it's um, and then on top of it, we, when we don't have good measures of success, like no good metrics, we say uh, we go to input. So we say if I am busy, if I'm working a lot of hours, if I am traveling a lot, if I go to a lot of meetings, I must be successful. And I sort of show that business becomes a, a sign of success, uh, which is crazy. I mean, it's almost like saying, you know, the more meetings I go to, the more successful I am. <laughs> but that's the way we are, operate today. It's a myth we need to kill. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Uh, you, you also um, said something or you showed a video that uh, I found compelling. It was, it, was, it was not about, there was someone at a job interview that was asked, you know, tell me about the opportunities that you've turned down. And then he presented a bunch of opportunities and those opportunities weren't necessarily mm. opportunities that he would have take, taken anyways, right? But it's the opportunities that you really, really wanted to do with, you know, every bone in your body and being able to say no to those opportunities. That's when you know that you're really, really focusing down on one thing. Yeah, that's... Um Johnny Ive, who's the chief design officer of Apple, uh, probably one of the three most important people at Apple, uh, in, in addition to Tim Cook and, and, and Steve Jobs, and of course, some others as well, but very important person to Apple, uh, the chief designer, right? So Apple produces beautiful design products and he's behind all of those and his team. Um, and in that video clip, he talks about you know, Steve Jobs kind of criticizing him for, for not being focused enough. Or have you said no to anything last week? Steve Jobs asked him. It's a great question. What have you said no to lately? Right? And um, he said what focusing means is that is to say no to something that you with every bone in your body you want to do. I mean, we can all say no to a bad idea. But a good idea, that's hard. Because you're already working on other good ideas. And there's always so many good ideas you can work on. And that's the hard part. And I believe that, um, especially for young professionals, I think, the importance of saying no. Because one of the great things of working today is that you will have opportunity. You're inundated with social media and information everywhere, left and right. Uh, how do you sort of spend your time and saying no is so important. Mm -hmm. The other thing you mentioned is focusing on creating value. Uh, not just reaching goals, which perhaps is the more traditional way mm. of doing business. Yeah. Um, but the concept of creating value, I mean, what do you mean by this? And, and is this different today as opposed to what it was in the past? And can you think of any individuals or leaders that exemplify or embody this? Yeah, I, I think the um, it's 
more important today and we get it wrong. So we are goal-oriented. We should set goals. Managers set goals. People look for goals. They try to achieve their goals. But they don't really ask always, are those goals actually creating the most value that we can? And I use this example in my book. Uh, it's a very trivial example, but very telling. It's a high-tech company in the United States, in, in the Silicon Valley, and they ship electronic products. And out of the warehouse, they were tracking whether or not these, these shipments went out on time according to the internal schedule. And the person in charge of the warehouse was achieving his goals because 99% of the time they went out on time. But that was the wrong measure because one year they started asking the customers, did you get your shipment on time? (laughs) Completely different measure. (laughs) And no, they said one third of the time they come too late to the, when we need it. In other words, very poor performance. So he was achieving his goals, getting his bonus and probably a promotion on the wrong metric and we do this all the time so we need to change that we need to be much more value oriented and less kind of productivity oriented and um, this is something that um, permeates um, silicon valley and high-tech companies they do it wrong they are not very good at this Um, for example youtube Uh, their internal metric is the number of hours and minutes you and i watch youtube Uh, But is that value? What about high quality watching? How about high quality content? Uh, So they're making this assumption that the more you watch, the more value you get. And that's not true when we think about addiction around, you know, social media and so on. So it's a wrong metric uh, for the purpose of of, of creating value. Uh, It's a tough thing to to change that because it's harder to create, to measure something that is really valuable. Uh, But I've seen... um, for example, there are um, hospitals in the United States. They're trying to track not the number of patients they have treated and number of beds they have and number of nights that patients you know, spent in a hospital, but rather did they, the percentage of accurate diagnosis and did they receive the right treatment? And they're trying to track those two instead of this internal kind of turnover thing. And it's harder, but it's much better. Mm. Uh, your findings also said to match your passion with a strong sense of purpose. And you found that people who are passionate about their jobs uh, perform better. But you also find that a bunch of people who are passionate don't necessarily perform better. Um, and uh, you say that the common advice heard at university graduation speeches everywhere, you know, follow your passion, just follow your dream and everything will kind of um, turn out right, can be really dangerous advice. Um, and for the young listeners, why, why is this dangerous advice? Yeah, I don't know if there are these commencement speakers in, in, in Norway and the Nordics, but um, in the US, uh, that is the common refrain. Uh, follow your passion and everything will work out eventually. Do what you love and then things will be great. And that's a dangerous advice, not just bad, it's dangerous. Because you have young people saying, you know, I want to become an actor or actress in Hollywood and I'm going to follow that or the theater or play some instrument and whatever it is and they go down that path and they find uh, no jobs, no future and, and, and then if you start thinking about it, what does it mean to follow your passion? It basically means um, you, sh- you should do what the world can give you. It is what excites you. That's what passion means and there's nothing wrong with it but that is the only thing you think about. It's wrong. What you need is purpose. Purpose is the opposite of passion. Purpose is do what contributes beyond yourself. It is what you can give the world, not what the world can give you. 
But the sweet spot is then you have both passion and purpose. And you can find that in so many different employees all over. Uh, one great example uh, from our book is this hotel concierge in a town in Canada. And she says, you know, being a hotel concierge is truly has that intersection for me. I'm passionate. I love interacting with people. Well, if you know, if you're that extrovert who just loves chatting with people, being a hotel concierge sounds pretty good to me. But she also thinks of her job as uh, purposeful, that she's there because she wants to help this guest to come to her city and have a great vacation. And it's her job to provide that happiness for them. And if she can do that, she has achieved in her job. She has a combination. Why is it powerful? Because if you have both, you have focused energy. You wake up in the morning, you feel energized going to work, and you really just drive that passion and purpose. And when people don't have it, work is drudgery. Work is awful. It's stressful. It's boring. It's burnout. So we really need to have that. I mean, I think if you're looking for a job and a role, a professional life, you're going to strive for getting one that can give you both. And for companies, you need employees that have both. Uh, and uh, you did say something in the beginning of this talk that I need to address because uh, you talk about the people that work less, about 50 hours a week, they are the best performers. Uh, when you reach a given number of hours, your performance starts declining. And first of all, why is this? And second of all, in a world where everyone's always expected to be connected and anytime performance is a given in a lot of occupations, what's your advice to employees and leaders in these kinds of organizations to kind of change the way we work so that we work less but smarter yeah I guess. so my research and other people's research too show that that the people who work the most hours are not the greatest performers which sounds strange because okay if i'm working 70 hours but i add 10 more hours i may not be very productive because i'm tired but at least uh i'm adding something right and it turns out pe many people are not quality goes down error rates go up so in encoding, for example, the number of bugs that, that creep into the code at night, you know, will go up. Um, so your quality goes down. Uh, you're making less crypt slide, they become more cluttered. And so the overall uh, is, uh, performance is not so good. In addition, it's hard to keep it up. So if you're putting in 70 hours or 80 hours for one week or five weeks in a row, then the next five weeks is harder for you to keep up. So it's good maybe for short periods of time, but it's not good in the long term. So we find that uh, sort of the golden rule, and these are American numbers, uh, people are around 50 hours. That's sort of what you should work. And, and that sounds maybe in the Nordic, sounds like a high number. <laughs> My wife is French and she's in France, they have 36 hours work, work <laughs> week. So they're thinking, what do you mean 50? Uh, it may not be 50 in the Nordics, but there is a certain number. And beyond that, you're not producing much more. So the question then becomes, how are you going to spend the 50 hours? That's the real question. It's not whether I can, you know, do 70 hours. And the only caveat there is that, sure, of course, product deadlines, putting on a big conference, whatever sort of you do, those period of times, it's going to be more intense. But we're talking average here. So if you were an entrepreneur versus a person that works in a corporation, most likely the entrepreneur is going to need to put down more hours. I mean, do you see that 
even in entrepreneurship, they shouldn't really put down more than 50 hours a week. Yeah, I think it's the same thing. Um, it's probably more intense. Maybe the average is a little higher. But we also see in, in startups in the Silicon Valley, you have burnout, people leaving. Uh, it doesn't mean they produce great work. Um, you know, the, um, the CEO of Asana, which is one of the um, mess corporate messaging uh, companies, is pretty successful. He was a co-founder of Facebook. And he's written a lot about this, uh, saying, you know, when I was at Facebook, uh, I worked incredible, insane hours, and it was bad. I got irritated. I made error rates. I was I didn't have the energy. And now we're trying to work differently in my new startup because we know from experience that this is not the best way. And here's the thing. If you want to have the best performance, whether it's a startup or an established company, it is not through just more and more hours. It is the right number of hours, which is high. It's hard work. And then it's how you spend the hours that matters. Mm. So you also discuss how the world's changing and how power is being redistributed and the value of inclusion and diversity is more important than ever. But then you look around and you see that honestly, we're nowhere close to that. I mean, even in gender equal Norway, there's still just 10% female CEOs, the world's uh, second most gender equal country. And we're also operating, which you mentioned on stage as well, in a part of the world that's very consensus oriented, meaning that we seek to agree more than we do friction. But you say that diversity and opposing opinions is essential to thrive in the future, and that companies that don't succeed will fall behind. Now, why is that? And why aren't mo more companies successful in actually creating a diverse workforce? I almost want to ask you that question, Isabel. This is your area of expertise <laughs> and you do all this great work to get, you know, women in tech empowered and and get, you know, women to code is, is a fantastic thing. So thank you. Um, I looking at the performance literature and I said, what are the teams that perform the best? If I just start there and they are the teams that have a, a diverse groups. Uh, in gender, in perspectives, information, backgrounds, experiences. Because I mean, just imagine you have people who are exactly the same, same background, same information, same gender, sitting in a room debating. It's a very narrow debate. You need that diversity of perspectives if you want to have great ideas and great decisions. And that is more important now than, than before because things move so fast. There's so many new ideas coming online, uh, online. And if you cannot have the same ideas because you don't have the diversity, you're going to underperform. So this is absolutely crucial. But then if you don't have real debate in the room, what point is diversity? I mean, if I have no real debate where I'm hearing different viewpoints, I might as well not have, you know, women in the meeting room or people with different ethnicity or different sort of backgrounds. You need to have a real fight where you can debate ideas. And consensus has the potential danger of killing that. Because if you're striving for consensus, you don't want to rock the boat. You don't want to be the hand that goes up and saying, hey, wait a minute, I think we're making a terrible mistake here. Um, as a woman with different experience, you might not say, well, I'm not sure this app is going to work for women. You know, maybe we should think about it a little differently. You're not going to provide those inputs because you're not allowed to, because you're breaking the consensus. So I call it fight. We're going to have good fights, but the fights on ideas. There's a way to fight right versus wrong. So we need diversity and we need good fighting. And that is a very powerful combination. And I've got to say that the high-tech community in, say, in the Valley, Silicon Valley, is, is doing a poor job at that. It's not very, uh, in terms of gender and other minorities, um, ethnic minorities, it's not very good. Long way to go, mm. as you know very well, better than I do. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. It's a long way to go everywhere in the world. Um, and you mentioned that I work with gender equality. And then in your book, you had some really interesting findings that uh, match a lot of what we've uh, found and written about as well. But the differences on gender, because you find that, for example, being assertive works really well for men, uh, while women who are equally assertive are perceived as aggressive. Now, in your research and all of your extensive findings, uh, what are the consequences, in your view, of this unconscious bias? And how do you, when you teach organizations, uh, how do you tell them to counteract them? Yeah, it's a, it's a big problem. Um, it's, it's hard. Um, but you're right. I mean, what we found confirmed, I think, previous research, um, you have the same exact same behavior and uh, assertive behavior, which you need to get, you know, influence and buy-in and, and excitement around your ideas. And, and the man is seen as, oh, that's great, competent. And the woman is seen as aggressive uh, with the same exact same behavior. Uh, greater aware awareness uh, is important um, to, uh, and that takes training. So I think corporate training on, on unconscious bias, uh, which is that it's all an automatic uh, kind of uh, gut reaction to, to some of these things. And, and, and we just need to counter that. Um, better processes that are more sort of gender neutral would be important. I mean, for example, if you look at recruiting, we know that if the name is a woman versus man on the CV, everything else is the same, it's treated differently. Probably in that instance, you could take away the name from the CV when you're looking at job applicants. Uh, would be a, a good way of sort of getting rid, rid of some of these biases. Uh, tough problem, we need to spend more time on it. Mm. I could talk to you forever about that, yeah. but uh, we're running out of time, unfortunately, but I need to ask you uh, something that I think most listeners will find interesting because I, I, I believe, or maybe I'm biased to believe that most people want to become a better performer and more effective in their professional and personal lives. But then despite that we really want to, and we put in a lot of effort and will, or at least we like to think that we do, it's really easy to fail and regress back into previous patterns. How did you conquer this yourself if you were ever not a high performer, which maybe you probably were, but what is your advice to other people who would like to follow in your footsteps or other people's really high performing footsteps? I think it is to change your habits little by little. I mean, it sounds daunting. You know, you look at these people who master these seven factors that I talk about in my, in my book, Great at Work, and they sort of think, I can't do that. That's too much. How am I going to go from where I am today and, and to there. I mean, it's like people who go on a diet, for example, I need to lose, you know, 30 kilos. I don't know where, you know, where do I start? It's the same thing. Start with small habit changes. Take focusing, do less than obsess. It's not a binary thing. Either I am, I can do it or not. Um, start to look at your calendar the next three weeks and say, okay, what are the things that I can actually drop? Don't need to go to that meeting. I can make that meeting in half. Maybe that business trip is not needed. It could be a telephone call instead. I'm freeing up some time. And then it freed up time, I say, okay, some of that time, what is my most important priority? And I can put that time on that, right? To make sure, you know, I free up four hours on the calendar. I put it on that time. And now I'm starting to change. And I keep on doing that. It's a little by little um, that you get to this. And, and that to me, that's the way I did it. I started saying, I need to prioritize better. And instead of saying, you know, I'm going to cut out everything on my calendar, I just started ticking, out, ticking off things. And, and, and I think that's, that's the way forward. And tell yourself, you know, I'm going to pick one of the seven factors. I'm going to be a little bit better. I'm going to practice every day. And, and let's call it an eight-week sprint 
and then I move on to the next one. And within a year, you've gone a long, long way. Well, thank you for prioritizing this podcast then. Uh, it's been really amazing to speak to you. We have three standard questions before I let you go. Uh, if you could give your 20-year-old self two pieces of advice, what would that be? We already talked about it. I was in my early 20s at BCG and had I had this wisdom, <laughs> I would have done like Natalie yeah. and not like myself. Yeah. So work, work the proper amount of hours and do a better job in mm -hmm. those hours. What's your favorite podcast? Uh, you know, uh, my colleague, uh, so I've been listening to, to, to podcasts in the United States. Um, Adam Grant out of Warden has a wonderful podcast on work life. He's just tremendous. And I just give him a lot of credit for that. I, I, I listen to that. But there are, many, there are so many good podcasts out there. I mean, this is a great new uh, arena for us to learn more. So uh, I just love podcasts, actually. Mm. Us too, obviously. Uh, where should people go to follow you? So uh, on my website, uh, which is mortenhansen.com, spelled in a Norwegian way, not the Swedish way, with M-O-R-T-E-N-H-A-N-S-E-N.com. We got some free resources there. There's one that's really, I think it's really fun to do. I got a, a small assessment tool where you go through and answer about 20 questions. And you will get a score relative to, I think, 10,000 other people's by now on these seven factors. Where do you stack up? What's your strength? What's your weakness? And that's a good place to start if you want to sort of say, what should I work on to become better? Ooh, I'm going to do that immediately. <laughs> Morten, thank you so much for joining the Future Podcast, Future Forecast Podcast. Thanks, Isabel. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Future Forecast. Please remember to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. And if you really like it, we would really appreciate if you shared one of the episodes on social media or with one of your friends. Thank you so much. Talk to you next week.